please read with me. Uh, turn to Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Sounds pretty straightforward. Um, Yeah, treat them, those that are standing in the way of the gospel going forward, well. Treat them well. Maybe even do good to them. And that will heap coals upon their head. Right, That's got to be a bad thing. And then, good comes to me. All right. At least that's kind of what I thought uh, when I went looking for this passage some months ago. Trying to find out how my enemies could be taken out of the way. I mean, they make ministry pretty difficult, right? But uh, what I want to convey to you today is that, one, it may not be as straightforward as you may think. (laughs) And two, the application for us in our context may be quite challenging. Um, But I believe will probably be intensely practical also. So... Um, I want to first deal with this idea of um, imprecatory prayer, praying that um, someone might be taken out of the way, perhaps even you know, God's judgment upon them that they deserve. Uh, first, let's make sure we're, we're being biblical, right? We want to be biblical. So, Is it okay for me to pray like this? Lord, this person is making it difficult for ministry. Remove them however you see fit. How about, God, this false teacher is leading so many to hell. Expose him for the charlatan that he is. How about, Lord, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the black Israelites, the Scientologists, right, insert whichever cult you'd like, are standing in the way of the gospel. Break their teeth. How about this one? Lord, either convert our, insert government official here, or kill them. Convert them or kill them. How about... God, these 42 young boys keep calling me baldy. Cause two mama bears to come out of the woods and tear them apart. That one's from 2 Kings 2, 23 to 24. The prophet Elisha, uh, he didn't actually pray that. He just cursed the 42 youngsters um, in the name of the Lord. And that's what the Lord did Two. Mama Bears came out and mauled 42 young people. 
So just to be clear, yes, imprecatory prayers are biblical. Um, Not just imprecatory prayers, but imprecatory psalms, right? Songs, they are too. Basically, these prayers and songs invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies or those perceived as the enemies of God. Some major imprecatory psalms include Psalm 69, Psalm 109, Psalms 5, 6, 11, 12, 35, 37, 40, 52, 54, 56, 57, 58, 59, 79, 83, 94, 137, 139, and 143 are also considered imprecatory. So yeah, it's, it's pretty prevalent. As a sample, turn to Psalm 69. All right, we're dealing with how we treat our enemies. Psalm 69. Uh, and I'll start at 22. Psalm 69, 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. And let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Basically, don't don't allow them to be saved or converted. You may be thinking, yeah, the Old Testament was kind of harsh. But there's more. Let me give you a sampling from the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. Um, But Jesus, in Matthew 23, 13 says, but woe unto you. Uh, By the way, a a good way of remembering that word woe, right? W-O-E, what that means, uh, is the acronym uh, wrath of the eternal. So when someone is calling woe upon someone, it's, it's not good. The wrath of the eternal. So Jesus in Matthew 23, 13 says, but woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Again, Jesus, this time speaking of Judas, all right, the one who would betray him, in Matthew 26, 23 to 24, and he answered and said, he that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, which is accursed.
Again, Paul in Galatians 1. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Basically, let him go to hell now. As we said before, uh, so I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that he that ye have received, let him be accursed. So he repeats it. Galatians 5, Paul again, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's castration. For those of you not up on your uh, dictionary skills. Paul in 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. That's not a good thing. Um, as a side note, uh, notice he's naming a name here. For us all down through history, um, Alexander the coppersmith. Right? Uh, let him get what he deserves. In Revelation 6.10, John tells of martyrs slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. In Revelation 6.10 it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Calling on the Lord to avenge them. So why? Why would we do this? These imprecatory passages have presented (laughs) a lot of interpretive and ethical issues for some. It sounds harsh, again. Um, But some scholars, right, they, um, they may take issue with these. You may take issue with these. Uh, But biblical scholars scholars do agree on this, that the intent of these passages is to purposefully alarm, which they do, and warn those who would oppose God and his work. These are enemies of God. Should we pray these things about the enemies of God? Careful. Careful. We were once enemies of God. So, how are, do we, how are we to treat our enemies? First, let me ask you, who is your enemy? I'm going to try to make a case a little bit here that you should have no enemies. You have neighbors. Right? Who are your neighbors? Turn to Romans 12. In Romans 12, uh, this passage is quoted, but it gives us a little more to it. Romans 12. And in Romans 12, uh, verse 14 through 21. Romans 12. And we'll start at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those 
who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The heading for this passage in my Bible may be different than yours. No, it's not inspired. But the heading over this passage in my Bible says, The Marks of a True Christian. Never avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So let's take a look again at Proverbs 25. But I'm going to read a different version of this. You can look at Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. And as I was looking at this, I looked up the word enemy. There's got to be a different, you know, rendering of this, enemy. Um, Every version I looked at (laughs) said enemy, um, except for one. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. So let's, let's look at the Hebrew word. Let's look at the Greek word, you know, all those things. And that word for enemy basically means hater, basically. Um, so the rendering reads like this, Proverbs 25, 21, 22. If the one who hates you is hungry, give him food to eat. And if the one who hates you is thirsty, give him water to drink. It's a little different than your enemy, right? It's not the one you hate. The one who hates you, not the one you hate. You are never given the option of hating your neighbor. In our current situation, that is, Bible-believing Christians in this day and age, uh, we have many that would hate us simply for our convictions. Because our convictions run contrary to this world system. The one that hates you. Hate. Hate is a God-given emotion. Of course, it's corrupted, right? Uh, We hate our neighbor. That's murder. Right? Murder of the heart. But hate is a God-given emotion. Why would God give us something like that? It's an emotion used to destroy something. Okay, why would God give us an emotion like that? We should hate our sin. John Owen asked, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You should hate 
your remaining indwelling sin and turn that God-given destructive emotion of hate against it. Turn your hatred towards that which would drag you to hell, your sin. Hate the things God hates, not hate sin. You do not have that option to hate individuals. You're called to love your neighbor. So who's your neighbor? Yeah, the one who hates you. Uh, If you turn to Luke 10, familiar passage, Luke 10. In Luke 10, we're shown who our neighbor is. And again, it's a very familiar passage, so we don't need to explain too much of it. But Luke 10, uh, verses 25, we'll start at, through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, talking to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. And that may just be someone who hates you. Let's flip it on its head. If you're the hated one, ask yourself why. Is it because, or is it for the cause of Christ, or for your own cause? Is it you they hate, or is it Christ in you that causes them to hate you? Do you have enemies, All right, those that hate you? Winston Churchill would say, good, that means you've stood up for something in your life. May what you stand for be Christ. Let's take another look at it. 
Are you the one hating? I would call you now to turn from that destructive sin. Okay, what about that heaping coals upon their head? That's, that's got to be bad, right? But thou shalt, keep, uh, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Is this future judgment? Right? Do them good, causing them to sin and store up even more wrath so that their punishment is even greater? No. Your intentions should not be revenge. Even at God's hands. Oh, I didn't do it. God did it. God's not your weapon. Um, St. Chrysostom and other church fathers uh, consider that divine vengeance is implied in this with the heaping burning coals upon their head. Um, and some of the passages used to back that up, Psalm 11.6, I'll just read it. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be their portion. And Psalm 140.10, let burning coals fall upon them. So, you know, maybe it is heaping judgment upon them. But by showing, them love, by showing love to them, we will be pouring out judgment on them. This does not mean that we are to do these things with a view to this, right? This is not our desire. In other words, to, in order to obtain vengeance. But simply indicates that that is what will necessarily follow if they don't repent of their ways. The wicked will be brought into judgment. This would tie in with the fact that coals of fire are seen in the Old Testament as manifestations of the approach of God in judgment on the enemies of the psalmist. Uh, and there are a number of verses here, but we'll, uh, for sake of time, um, if you want the, those, I can give those to you. But many of those psalms that we mentioned before are part of that. Of course, in one view of these coals of fire, um, kindness to an evil man only gives him occasion for fresh ingratitude and hatred. You feed him, you give him water, and he hates you all the more. And therefore, it does increase God's wrath against him. But, but it would be a wicked motive to act, right? Act a charitable part, only to have the satisfaction of seeing your injurer humbled or punished. That should not be our desire. As Christians, saints, we should be so far from meditating revenge upon those that have shown themselves to be our enemies that we should go, uh, that, that they should do good unto them, right? It should be so far out of our mind. As Christ directs in Matthew 5, 44, we are commanded to love our enemies and pray for those who, per, who, pers who persecute us. Matthew Poole, a nice quote by him, I like this, says, Thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, either make him relent or bring down the greater vengeance from God upon him. But I think Justin Edwards says it better. Heap coals of fire on his head, which will be adapted to melt him into penitence and love. 
The coals of fire are pains, but healing pains of remorse and repentance. Um, both Jerome and Augustine, church fathers, uh, support this position. Um, if we look at St. Peter, I'm sorry, First Peter, not St. Peter. He is a saint, as we all are. First uh, Peter 2.15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And in 1 Peter 3.16, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So heaping coals of fire upon the head of one who hates you is a good thing. For by doing so, it causes shame. The precept to love even our enemies is an Old Testament commandment. Um, remember how Saul, in the Old Testament, King Saul, expressed his consciousness of David's generosity in sparing his life. In 1 Samuel 24, it says, Thou art more righteous than I. This is Saul talking to David. For thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done unto me this day. I've done you evil. You've done me good. May God bless you for that. Later on in 1 Samuel 26, he says, Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Heaping coals of fire on their head. Not to do someone hurt. Not to increase his condemnation. It should not be our desire to bring down the wrath of God more fiercely on him. Which would actually be the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is setting forth right, in Romans. Um, and by doing so, his conscience would be stung with a sense of past wrongs done to the one who has fed him and given him water in the time of his greatest need. This enemy, if you will, the one who hates you, will be filled with shame on account of it. Man, this guy fed me. Gave me water to drink when I needed it most. It would be filled with shame. And it would, prayerfully, he would be brought to repentance for his wrongs. To love the person he before hated. And be careful of doing any wrong in the future, like Saul. All this should be considered as the primary motive of God's people. To be generous to those opposed to the gospel. In the passages we referenced, right, bread and water, uh, those are mentioned. These are necessities of life. And of course, for our benefit or encouragement, Proverbs adds, and the Lord shall reward thee. One commentator said, heaping coals of fire upon his head refers to the burning pain of shame and remorse which the man feels whose hostility is repaid by love. And another commentator, the most excruciating punishment to a man is to make him feel that he has done wrong to one who loves him 
and leave it to his own conscience and to God to punish for the wrong. We're told not to uh, do not be overcome by evil. That would be seeking our enemy's ruin or demise, right? Hating our neighbor. But we are to overcome evil with good. Give him food to eat. Give him water to drink. This heaps coals upon his head, causing shame. The best way to destroy your enemy? Ooh, ooh, tell me. How do I destroy my enemy? The best way to destroy your enemy is to make him a friend. Or better yet, a brother. Think of um, another Old Testament um, story. We have time, so turn to Second Samuel. How do we treat those who may hate us, who may be our enemy? Uh, it was customary with kings when they came into power, Second Samuel 9, when they came into power to kill off all of the previous king's descendants so no one could challenge the throne. Um, in 2 Samuel 9, David right, has, is now king. Saul has since died. Saul's son, Jonathan, has since died. And David is looking for some way to be kind to the house of Saul. Um, we'll read through verse 13, but starting at 1. 2 Samuel 9, 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Could you imagine? You're some crippled guy, the grandson of the previous king, and David, a man of blood, calls for you. You're the only one that could maybe challenge for the throne. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Is this not what Christ did for us? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I get... I have given to your master's grandson. 
And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land, till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mika. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. You were once an enemy of God. Did God simply destroy you as you deserved? No, he, 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 he heaped up burning coals upon your head. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The kindness of God, the goodness of God, leads to the turning of sin, turning from sin. God has revealed to you your sin. And that shame you feel over it should melt your heart of stone and lead you to repentance and faith. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right. Saul, become, before uh, his name being changed to the Apostle Paul, was persecuting Christians. Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? He was killing Christians. Christ asked, why are you hating me? Why are you my enemy, Saul? He thought he was doing good. If you would turn to Acts 9. Acts 9. In Acts 9, um, Saul has had his um, (laughs) experience, if you will, with Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, Sorry. Yes, Acts 9, uh, starting at verse 10. Acts 9, um, starting at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I wouldn't doubt that there were disciples praying for Saul, for, for the Lord to kill Saul, to take him out. He's an enemy to your gospel. He's an enemy to the ministry. He's your enemy, God. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Most of the New Testament is written, written by Paul. Um, if the disciples somehow knew, right, if God told him, told them that Saul of Tarsus, right, the enemy of the faith, would respond with repentance and faith to the gospel, Right prior to the Damascus Road experience? Would they still have prayed that way? I'm not saying, right, perhaps they prayed that Paul would be taken out of the way. But if they knew that he would respond with repentance and faith, would they have not boldly approached the one who hated them to see him converted? Ananias went, albeit hesitantly, <laughs> and he's rewarded by seeing his enemy turn into his brother. He'll heap burning coals upon their head, and the Lord will reward you for your obedience, church, for your efforts as an ambassador for Christ. You will be rewarded perhaps even with seeing the one who hates you converted. Let's pray. Almighty God, it is humbling to know that you can take the worst and change their heart of stone, that they may be your servant, and do much for your kingdom. Lord, what, what holds us back? Lord, may we desire not to see just some stranger converted to you, but Lord, even those that hate us, individually or collectively. Lord, keep us from desiring 
Lord, I don't want to desire your judgment on someone. I want to see them come to you. I know that won't happen with all. And Lord, as those that will inevitably reject you, do so, I pray, Lord, that we might see many come to you as we did, haters of God. May they love you. May they be our brothers as you adopt them into your family. May we go boldly even to those who hate us, preaching your gospel in faith, Lord, looking to see a harvest. And may they then join us in the fields. The fields are white to harvest, but the laborers are few. May you convert those that they may join us in your work. In Christ's name, amen.